0: Well, if you would turn to Jude and as you do just a reminder that today we're wrapping up this book If you've just joined us and we've got some new faces this morning. No worries It's only one chapter. So we'll do a little review Um, But uh, we're excited about the summer study that we're going to launch starting on the 20th of June So mark your calendars. We've got a bit of a gap Uh, We're going to meet about every every two to three weeks uh, through the summer five times, and we're going to deal with some questions, theological questions that, uh, you know, there really is a book out. It's, it's uh, I think it's called 50 Questions Your Bible Teacher Never Wants You to Ask, and I had a, I had a young lady in a class once that owned that book, and she thought it would be funny to start asking these questions throughout the class. Uh, she failed, but anyway, it was nice having her in class. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah i'll tell you that story some other day the so we're gonna look at some i think some very key issues and and they're in our culture (laughs) Uh, we're gonna look at the bible uh, whether it's fact fiction or fantasy we're gonna deal with issue with god and his the openness concept and that is is god all knowing or does he is he kind of contingent on what people decide to do we're gonna deal with christ man, and then Christ, and then salvation. We dealt with the Holy Spirit last uh, summer. So these are the topics we're going to be addressing. And if you've got young people in college or in high school, uh, this would be a great thing to bring them to uh, because these are hot buttons. They really are. Uh, Sadly, they're not issues that are discussed outside the four walls of the church. They're discussed in the four walls. And I think I mentioned a guy who's written one of the most prominent Bible atlases that is out there and he's denied the deity of Christ about a year ago. So it's prevalent. Why would they entertain it? Those are some of the issues we're going to address as we move through this. And um, I, I'm excited about this. Uh, we, we live in a culture that's very pluralistic uh, and uh, supposedly very open-minded until it comes to Christianity. And you know that. Um, in fact, I was just talking to a family yesterday, their son shared Christ, fifth grader, with another fifth grader at uh, a public school, and uh, there's been a firestorm. The mother called the, the family, then she's called the school. She's threatening legal action against the school just because their son, who's a fifth grader, shared Christ with a friend on the bus. So we, we live in a crazy world. Um, there's some exciting things happening, though, aren't there? Uh, we have hope and we have joy, which we're going to talk about, that this world does not have and uh, I think it's becoming more and more clear <laughs> on which side of the fence you're on. Anyway, let's look at Jude, and I want to start in verse one again. I'm just going to read the first four <clears throat> verses, but it book ends with what were the two verses we're going to look at later today or this morning. It says, "From Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So Jude is a half brother of Jesus. Uh, grew up in the home." But not a follower of Christ until later, according to elsewhere in the New Testament. To those who are called, wrapped in the love of God, and kept for Jesus Christ. Remember, he loves these triads. He he speaks in threes. He will break that pattern today. And we'll see that. It's very interesting. May mercy, peace, love, there's three, be lavished on you. Dear friends, although I have been eager to write to you about our common salvation, that was what he was going to write. He says, I've changed my mind. I now feel compelled, power of the Spirit, instead to write to encourage you to contend earnestly for the faith that once for all was entrusted to the saints. He's very concerned about the church. He sees what's happening within its four walls, not on the outside, These false teachers are inside. He says, verse four: For certain men have secretly slipped in among you, men who have long ago were marked out for their condemnation. I'm about to describe ungodly men, which he does, doesn't he? Who have turned the grace of our God into a license for evil. All right, they've waved that banner of liberty, freedom in Christ. You know, uh, you can be all you want to be. It's all about grace. So you know. live as uh, you see fit and who deny our only master and lord Jesus Christ. He then moves through and we we've been following through in five different lessons looking at how he compares Jude compares these false teachers to various men of old, right? Give me a, who does he compare them to? Give me an example. Who are we studied? Balaam, right? Who else? Balaam, Korah, Cain, right? And then even groups of people like the generation at the time of the Exodus or Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Everyone knows Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, in verse 24, he, wrap, he ties this all back together and he says in verse 24, now to the one who's able to keep you from falling. It's the one he mentioned early on, right? Verses 1 through 3 and to cause you to stand rejoicing without blemish before his glorious presence to the only God. That's very significant, isn't it? (laughs) There's only one. Our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and he throws in a fourth and authority before all time and now present and for all eternity. Amen. Right, he wraps up, and those those two verses you may have heard in a benediction and a service. Uh, I was involved with the church; the the former pastor he he recited those every Sunday at the end of the service. Um, They're powerful, and and they tie this book together, and they are to provide comfort to a group of people who are being ransacked by false teachers. Let's look at this. Let's unpack this. This is there in your notes under content. What we we have here is what's called a doxology. Uh, If you were laying out epistolary literature or letters in the first century, there was a typical format. There's the greeting, and there's the thanksgiving, and there's a body, and then there's a closing or a benediction. Many of the New Testament writings have a benediction, don't they? If you were to go through, you'd find that. And there are four major components, and all four are found in Jude. First of all, there's acknowledgment of who is to be praised. And in all of the doxologies in the New Testament, it's God, <laughs> right? Uh, that, that's what you would expect. Then there are attributes that are ascribed, and there's four of them in this doxology, this praise that's nestled here at the end of the letter. Then there's an extent to how long this praise is to be given, usually in the New Testaments forever and ever, right? (laughs) This is the longest or the most comprehensive extension of time given in any of the New Testament doxologies. He he covers the whole gamut, before time and even after time. This is true. And then finally, most of the doxologies end with a hearty amen, right? They were Southern Baptists in the first century. Amen, right? So there it is. What's significant about the doxology is that it's theocentric, isn't it? Jude doesn't close with, you know what? We just got to keep persevering on our faith or pull up your bootstraps. No, he, he reflects it all to God. And that's true with all of the doxologies. Romans is interesting, by the way. There's the doxology in chapter 16, but he can't contain himself after he's dealt with the whole doctrine of justification, being declared right. In chapter 11, he breaks out in a doxology. So there's two in Romans. He can't, you know, there's this yellow puddle by his chair as he's writing. He just has to break out in another doxology. He's not what you'd expect. But in, in Jude, uh, since we only have one chapter, uh, he saves it for the end here. Well, he starts off in verse 24 and he, he praises the Lord, or rec- excuse me, he recognizes the Lord's sovereignty. It's and notice he, he states something that the Lord will not allow you to do for those who follow him and for and it's something he will allow. First of all, he states the Lord will not allow you to fail or fall. It's probably better. He, he won't allow you to fall. Notice what he says. The Lord will keep you from failing. The idea of the Lord guarding your feet so you won't stumble is is a common theme in scripture. In fact, I've given you a couple of references. Turn to Psalm 66. Just look at this. Psalm 66. Verse 9. The text says, He preserves our lives and does not allow our feet to slip. Uh, The idea of walking through scripture is an idea of your conduct of life, your way of life. And that idea is brought forth here in that the Lord is going to guard your steps. And so he's not going to allow you to trip, which is very significant in light of our context, isn't it? Where the false teachers are seeking for them to trip up, for them to, to wander from the truth and to avoid the path. Psalm 121 is another, since you're in the Psalms. Look at this one, Psalm 121. This is one of the, uh, what we call, ascent psalms. They were sung as they went up to Jerusalem for the festivals. In Psalm 121, as you, it states in verse 3, May he not allow your foot to slip. May your protector not sleep. Uh, after the last couple trips to Israel, I've started reciting that to the group. <laughs> that limestone, when it gets wet, it's really slippery. I may, may not allow your foot to slip, you know. He's guarding you. He's protecting you. And so the first thing we see in this recognition of the Lord's sovereignty is He's, he's going to provide for you so you don't, you don't fall. On the flip side, the Lord will cause you to stand. Did you catch that? this idea of of being well-established, again, goes back to what we saw in verse 1, verses 1 through 3. And we see it in other doxologies. Notice the standing, which is before His glorious presence, which we'll get to in a minute, has two aspects. The Lord will cause them to stand first is with rejoicing. Did you catch that? He says, with rejoicing. Joy is a unique term in the New Testament. In fact, your assignment, if you want one during the week on page four, is to look at the Paul's theology of joy in the book of Philippians. What does he find joy in? And then compare that to your own life. But joy. Uh, <clears throat> throughout Scripture, joy is, is seen with the eschaton. It's seen with the end. Um, When Elizabeth meets Mary, and of course, she's pregnant with John the Baptist, and Mary is now pregnant. It says that John leaps in the womb, and the idea is with joy. The term comes from Malachi. That's the beginning of the book of Luke. At the end of Luke, it says the disciples go out in joy. It marks this new messianic age, but it also marks the end of... This idea of joy. In fact, turn to First Peter. We looked at this text some time ago. First Peter 4.13. 1 Peter 4.13 <clears throat> 4, says, But rejoice in the degree that you've shared in the sufferings of Christ, so that when His glory is revealed, you may also... There it is. What? Rejoice, right? And be glad. This idea of rejoicing. Uh, There's not a lot of rejoicing in Jude's readership right now. They're struggling. Uh, There's dissension in the camp, thanks to the false teachers, etc. I quote a Puritan prayer. Uh, I don't know the source of which particular Puritan, but I I love this prayer. It says, there's no joy like the joy of heaven. For in that state are no sad divisions unchristian quarrels. Contentions and evil designs, weariness, hunger, cold, sadness, sin, suffering, persecutions, toil of duty. O healthful, healthy place where none are sick. O happy land where all are kings. How free a state where none are servants except to thee! Bring me speedily to the land of joy. Right. And it's a promise to these believers, listen, there's a day coming when the Lord is going to have you stand and it's going to be with rejoicing. (laughs) You're in the presence of your Savior. The culmination of what you have strived to do, right? Keeping yourself in the love of God, verse 21, comes full circle here. And notice as well, he says you're without blemish, which is a term used normally of sacrificial animals. There is no flaw, no flaw. You will be complete on that day. Right? Which is exciting. But the the most astounding aspect is this third point which is on page two. And that is that we'll stand before His glorious presence. Now you think about that for a minute. We're not crawling, we're not kneeling, we're not even sitting or standing before the Lord. Uh, you you, You go to the Wailing Wall today, or Western Wall they call it, and an Orthodox Jew never stands to pray. They're always bobbing up and down. You don't, it's an affront to stand before God. All right? We are without blemish, which gives us the ability to come right into the Shekinah glory, into his presence, <laughs> and stand. To me, that's incomprehensible. Not about you. The God of the universe is saying, there's a day coming when you will be in my presence and you will stand. Yeah, Kyle. Wow. Can you have joy without hope? Not according to scripture because it's, the joy is directly linked with the hopeful expectation of the end. So they're tied together. I, I don't think so. Yep. Very good, Gary. Thank you. Yeah, they're they're directly linked together, James 1 and in Hebrews 13. In this idea of glory on page 2, I quote uh, Newman in his, his article on glory. He says, the glory of the Lord was intimately tied up with the theophany, the mighty and ominous arrival of God, an arrival that dramatically subdues evil. And that's the realm we come into it's so Jude is saying, listen, you got to persevere. <laughs> you got to stay in the love of God because God is going to guard and keep you. You're not going to fall, but he will cause you to stand and you'll stand before his presence. Any other comments or observations there? So verse 24 reflects on, again, the recognition of his sovereignty. And then he breaks out in this praise in verse 25. And there are several things here that uh, is important to note in his praise to God. First of all, God alone deserves the praise. We just commented on this, but it is exclusive and it's non-negotiable. That's what the false teachers would like to state, right? Well, there's other options. And at the bottom line is the false teachers are doing what 1 John 5 warns, and that is to keep yourself from idols. They have fallen right into that pit, right? Not that they're worshiping uh, statue of Baal or an Ashtaroth or, uh, I don't know, Diana. No. <laughs> the, the issue of idolatry for First John is that which keeps you from worshiping the Lord. That could be the pocketbook. That could be your family. That could be your job. Whatever takes precedence or shares equal footing with God Almighty, that's idolatry. Mu, in his commentary, makes... A very, well, he asked this very important question. Verse, it's there on your notes, but he says, What idols might we be worshiping even as we recite these words? God is the only God. He demands all of our worship and obedience, and nothing must rival our affections for him. It's an invaluable question that we must constantly ask ourselves because to Jude, this is the only God. He deserves all praise. And notice it says, To our only God, our Savior. He refers to Him, not Christ, as the Savior, worthy of praise. There's a text I want you to look at. Turn to Psalm 66, uh, 65. Excuse me. The idea that God is the Savior, again, is not a foreign concept in the Old Testament. 65.5 The psalmist states to the Lord, you answer our prayers by performing acts of deliverance, O God, our Savior. There it is, right? All the ends of the earth trust in you as well as the living across the wilderness. You created the mountains, and he goes into his created being. And, and, and then he closes, verse 13, they shout joyfully. Yes, they sing. Interesting, huh? He says, this is is our God. He is our Savior. And you false teachers who want to argue salvation is obtained through certain things that we do. No, it is solely through God. And He's the only source. And then he mentions through, he has this prepositional phrase, through Jesus Christ. And scholars debate on how to render this. Is that Jesus is the mediator of God's salvation to His people? Or... Is Jesus the mediator to God, giving glory, praise, and honor from his people up through to God Almighty? Does that make sense? So which way is the conduit going? Which way is the mediator going here? It's ambiguous in the text, and some scholars punt and go, yep, it's both. Uh, It was intentionally vague so that we could recognize that Christ fulfills both roles, doesn't he? he he brings salvation to humanity but he also through Christ we come to God uh, or th- we come to God through Christ with our praise and so both fit here with this idea that we are lifting up praise to God that he is the mediator questions on that <clears throat> that's heavily debated uh, to me it's either one works yeah john Yep, his whole his whole name, yeah, uh, yeah. Good. Any other comments? Well, here's my question for us all: Why does he break out in four, known as the attributes listed? He gives us four. Then we'll unpack them in a minute. But why would he give four here and not three? Everything else is spoken in threes. Thoughts? There's no right or wrong here. And by the way, most commentators just glance right over it or go on to the next point they don't want to address it. Why? I think there's something significant. Maybe I'm wrong. Why for? Why break protocol? Well, it calls attention, to it. attention. All right. Attention how just because Yep. It's different. I'll cause you to pause. Oops. Yep. What else? It seems yeah. like there's something in the word authority uh, that's gotta be highlighted because only he has the authority. Okay, there there seems to maybe be stress being placed upon the attributes. He's four, good, what else? Yeah, Micah. Well, even if he did that, now we have two, not four, or three. So yeah, you're on the right wavelength, but yes, yeah. Very good, yes. Okay, there's an emphasis here, perhaps. Uh, good. The statement before talks about that you haven't seen any triads. The phrase blameless. Jesus Christ did for us, made us blameless. And it's true, Jesus Christ. Perhaps that's why he could afford it. Okay. All right. I think that fits with some of this here. Good. Well, uh, some scholars say that it's simply stylistic. We're making too much of it. That could be. I wrote down the uniqueness of God could fit here. That there's no category. The rest I can speak in threes, but this is so unique that uh, because we're describing God himself that I have to I can't contain it in my typical paradigm of 3. Um, or it could be, he just can't contain himself. I, I, am so, I'm breaking out in great praise. Uh, this praise that I have just, just can't contain it in three. Uh, I, I don't know. Regardless, he breaks the pattern and you, I think it's more than simply stylistic. I believe you gotta, you gotta stop and pause for a second, right? If you go up the Ancient steps that led up to the temple time, at the time of Jesus. Every step, well, they alternate in, in size. And part of that was to stop the, the uh, pilgrim in order to look down and to reflect and to make sure they're slowing down as they come into the temple. There's that idea, I think, of, of stopping the reader for a minute and listening to what he's saying about God and as you noted Mike is correct there's there's an overlap between the first two and the last two so let me unpack these the first of these is glory we've already talked about this right the glorious presence seen in verse 24 this is not a uh, but the idea of bringing glory to God is recognizing his awesomeness the Hebrew word kavod means heavy Um, think of the Lego movie right everything is awesome Mm -hmm well, no, God is awesome. Um, he, he's, he's the one that re- deserves all praise. <clears throat> and as was stated by Micah, and you're correct, <clears throat> there is an overlap with majesty. And I mentioned there in your notes, it refers to greatness or preeminence. Green in his commentary believes the two function together in a very unique way. He writes... They place in high relief the importance of not turning away from the one who holds the most honorable position. They therefore frame the whole argument of the epistle, don't they? Remember, what was the, the problem with those that we listed in the past? They, uh, they either uh, they sought to thwart what God had laid out, right? They sought to live their own way, whether it be the angels that rebelled or the men of Sodom and Gomorrah there was this idea of of arrogance that no, I'm in charge and glory and majesty. If there's a recognition of that, then there's a recognition that no, he deserves everything. He's the awesome one. He's the preeminent one is the idea here. And so as Jude is writing to his readers, he said, don't forget who we serve, right? Don't, don't buy into the false teachers, Because they're they're not going to keep you from falling and they're not going to allow you to stand before the glorious presence of God. Only God can do that. Because He's the glorious one. He's the majestic one. And He says He's the all-powerful one, which is a common term that you're going to find in New Testament doxologies. It's peppered throughout. It refers to God's sovereignty. And the last one of these is authority. And that is that God is in control. Uh, he 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 control he's in charge of all of these things and then he breaks out with this statement he says before all time now and for all eternity in other words this isn't oh lord we hope that you are the glorious one no he this isn't a, a wish <laughs> this is a statement of fact right you are the glorious one you are the majestic one i mean think about those I mean, Spend time this today even reflecting, yeah, God, what does it mean that you're glorious? What does it mean that you're ma- majestic? What does it mean that you're powerful and you have authority in my life? All right? And whether you're walking through cancer, whether it's a job situation, uh, what's a re- what does that mean that, that, that you're this in my life? Well, these inerrant or innate attributes that God has he lays this out and then Jude can't contain it any longer he says amen so be it all right O'Brien states in his study on doxology says the amen makes it clear and I was referring to Paul's writings but Paul's description of praise is not simply a matter of the lips it is the spontaneous response of his whole being Jude gets done laying out this treatise of, of, of persevering in the faith, taking heed of the false teachers, and he comes back to God and says, look who we serve, right? Look who's in charge. These yahoos can do whatever they want. God is ultimately in charge. Well, let me give you three things to walk away with this morning. First of all, it's Joy. I wrote there, Christ followers should be the most cheerful humans walking this globe, right? Philippians 4.4, rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. That's different than happy. Happy is when I had a bowl that's got ice cream in it, right? A lot of ice cream. But joyful is vastly different. And again, I challenge you to look at Paul's theology on this. This is what the world does not have. I mean, just look, we, we are an angry lot. Uh, it just seems, all, all I see is anger. People are upset about this. I'm entitled to this. It's crazy. Joy should be marking a believer's life. Well, I'm starting to preach. We'll go on. Secondly, the God of the past is the same God who's working today and will guarantee the future. That's the beauty of it, right? Rehearsing those who strayed from the faith through Scripture, as Jude has done, has demonstrated that God is faithful to his word and he's faithful to his people. All the way back to Cain and Abel. And that same God is the same God we serve today. And so it's just a reminder of that Hebrews 13, right? The same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And then finally, 2 Timothy, I think, highlights what Jude is is highlighting as well. We shouldn't wait until our deathbed to turn to the Lord. That's why Jude stated, remember this, in verses 20, it says, verse 20, but you, dear friends, by building up yourselves in your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, maintain yourself in the love of God. That's an ongoing process, right? Guarding our hearts, guarding our minds, etc., and 2 Timothy discusses that. Well, in fact, turn to these final words of Paul. 2 Timothy 4. He, he talks about being self controlled and enduring the hardship, but in first or in 2 Timothy 4 8, he says, finally, the crown of righteousness, notice this, is possibly mine. No, it's reserved. It's not just for him. It's for anyone who has set their affection, their love on his appearing. Right? That's what Jude's saying. Persevere. Hang in there. Life stinks. Yep. <laughs> but there's a day coming. And we long for that day. And don't forget in the process, our God is glorious. He's majestic. He's almighty. All right? Uh, he is the one who has all authority. Questions? Comments? Cries of outrage? What a great little book, huh? Uh, I didn't... I'll be honest with you. I told a former colleague we were going to study Jude. He goes, well, there goes your men's Bible study. Uh, It's it's been a rich text. It really has. Well, there's a tradition that we have done. If you've just joined our men's Bible study, uh, when we wrap up a book, we sing the doxology. And I think it's fitting in light of these final words of Jude that we do that. So we've got to stand and I have the text here for so let's sing this. I'm not the world's greatest singer, so well, uh, I'm probably going to start way too low, right? <clears throat> Praise God from... Huh, reminds me of my Dallas Seminary days with a group of men singing, nothing more powerful. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Father, thank you for our journey through this text. Lord, we thank you that it's not just something that was penned 2,000 years ago and it's just a wonderful history lesson or a literature study, but these words are alive and they're sure. And we serve a God, Lord, that has written the plan the course of history. You're in charge and there's a day coming. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. And it's his name we pray.